Welcome to the Parenting with Impact podcast with your hosts, Elaine Taylor-Klaus and Diane Dempster, co-creators of ImpactParents.com, an online community, award-winning blog, and service organization, helping parents all over the world to raise complex kids become capable, independent adults. Hi, everyone. Elaine and Diane here. And we know that you want your complex kids to grow up to be happy and independent. And yet you're not always sure how or when to help with that. In this podcast, we'll encourage you to collaborate with all kinds of complex kids and support them in navigating life and learning. And we'll interview leading experts from around the world, as well as parents in our own community, talking about how training for parents actually helps these complex kids. We'll talk about the issues we hear parents struggling with all the time and how a coach approach can support and empower your amazing young people. We won't tell you what to do. We're going to help you figure out how. So let's move on to the next conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another conversation in the Parenting with Impact podcast. I'm really excited to welcome today's guest, Jonathan Mooney, whose work I've been familiar with for over 20 years, and I'm just now getting to meet you. So I'm really excited to have you. Welcome. Yeah, I'm excited to be a part of it. Thanks for having me. Well, so Jonathan, why don't you just kick us off by talking a little bit about how you ended up getting started in this work and and really what you do to support parents and families and neurodiverse people. Complex kids. Yeah. Well, you know, look, I've spent uh, 22 years as an advocate and social entrepreneur trying to make the world a better place for folks who live and learn differently. It's critical work because folks who uh, live and learn outside the lines get the short end of the stick. And um, it's very personal work uh, for me. It's personal because I was the square peg that didn't fit the round hole. And because of my own learning and attentional differences, was essentially told that my differences made me deficient as a human being. And uh, I've dedicated my, my professional life to trying to make sure that doesn't happen to anybody else. I'm in, I'm right there with you. And all the way down to learning and attentional issues. So I want to kind of go to two different directions. So I want to dive in a little bit more to your story, if we can, before we talk about what the impact is for, for other people that you're, the work that you're doing, the advocacy. Because on the one hand, you were a square peg that didn't fit the round hole. On the other hand, you were a pretty successful young adult in that process, where you wouldn't have graduated from Brown and gone on to write a book. So- yeah, what t- was t- it that? Go ahead. Yeah, tale of two experiences. Two experiences. Yeah. You know, I was uh, the kid who spent a lot of the time chilling out with the custodian in the hallway. Um, mm-hmm. I was the kid who grew up on a first name basis with Shirley, the receptionist in the principal's office. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Shirley. Uh, call out. Hey, what's yeah. up? <laughs> and the custodian, wherever you're at, man, you make yep. a you make a big difference. And, Mine was, uh, was the bookstore lady, <laughs> Mrs. Conley. <laughs> May she rest in peace. Shout yeah, out to well, Mrs. Conley. Yep. Yeah. Well, because of my dyslexia, it was not the bookstore where I was hanging out. And instead, I was uh, I was hiding in the bathroom to escape uh, reading out loud. Yeah. So I had a tough go, as too many uh, neurodivergent learners do. I dropped out of school for a year when I was in sixth grade. I had a plan for suicide the same year. And I was generally told that I was less than as a human being. As you rightfully noted, I transcended those low expectations. Uh, You know, I was told I'd be a high school dropout. I became a college graduate instead. 
Uh, I was told I'm just any college. (laughs) Yeah, from from an Ivy League college. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I was told I'd be an inmate and I became an advocate. So Mm. can I stop you for a sec? Because that sixth grade period we're seeing a lot of right now. We're seeing a ton of school refusal, a ton of school avoidance. Kids six, eight, 10, 12 years old saying, I'm not going. I'm out. And while that's happened over the years, it's much more common now. It was uncommon when you dropped out of school in sixth grade. How did that play out? And how did your family set you up for, for your, the future you landed on? Yeah, it was uh, it was not a thing to do back in 1986 or whatever it was. It took a lot of courage on my mom's part and my father. I hesitated about my dad because my dad was more in the what's wrong with you, buck up, work harder vein right. of parenting. My mom was an advocate for me. Um, mm-hmm. And so it took a lot of courage for my mom to advocate that what I needed wasn't to be fixed, but what I needed was a dramatic change in the environment around me. And so when I left in sixth grade, I wish I could say that, you know, I had some sort of really robust alternative learning pathway laid out. That's not the case. (laughs) What, what, What we did in sixth grade is I went to work with my mom. My mom runs a nonprofit organization in L.A., social justice organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, I volunteered with young children, which was a healing experience. I played a lot of soccer. That's what kept me going both then and later, that sort of island of competency. And I generally had an opportunity to heal from what was a traumatic experience. And I know that word's used a lot, but um, it's real. It's real and appropriate. Um, You know, for some people, not all, but some school is a traumatic place to be. And so what I took from that was a foundation that supported me through my adolescence and high school. And that foundation was be an advocate for yourself. Find out what you are good at. Don't remediate your problem, but build on your strengths. And now what ultimately led me to transcending those low expectations. Now, I'll be clear, it's one step forward, a couple steps back. It wasn't yeah. like, hey, seventh grade, now I'm on the honor roll, far from it. But nonetheless, that that year of healing and purpose and strength-based living put me on a different path. Yeah. Well, so when it, you came back, go ahead, Doc. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. So where I was headed was, you know, that advocacy, right? Helping kids to learn how to advocate for themselves. And what I see all the time is parents want their kids to be able to, they get that their kids are struggling. They want their kids to be able to stand up for themselves, but it's getting them to the point where they're comfortable and feel safe enough and can even articulate what they need. And I mean, as a sixth grader, I don't know how easy it was for you to say, this is what I need. This is what I'm having a hard time with you know, what would you say to parents about that journey and how to support their kids with that, maybe without taking a year off of school? Because I think that kind of panics a lot of parents, although some of these kids may need a year off school. What's your thought on that? Well, first, you know, look, self-advocacy behavior, as you articulated, is learned behavior. You know, it's not something that you just come out uh, doing or not doing. You learn it like any skill. And so that, that learned behavior starts with modeling it. You know, that's what my mom did. You know, my mom, you didn't mess with Colleen Mooney. <laughs> you know, she's like, she's like 4'11", little Irish bulldog. And she has a very high-pitched, squeaky voice like Minnie Mouse. And she curses like a truck driver. 
And uh, if you were a teacher doing wrong by me, you did not want cursing Minnie Mouse in your office, right? <laughs> but that's where my mom was um, every day. She was an advocate for me. And that taught me that I should fight for myself mm-hmm. and that I was worth fighting for. So that's the first step. It's not the last step. Self-advocacy also comes from metacognition, thinking about your own thinking. And my mom would constantly be reflecting back to me. Well, hey, Jonathan, you know, reading's hard, but you can really talk. Or writing is difficult, but look at the uh, stories that you come up with in your mind. So she was constantly reflecting back what I needed, what I was good at, what I wasn't, and more importantly, what could help bridge the gap. And then the third thing is you got to practice it, right? Uh, Like any skill, you got to practice it. So I didn't have the opportunity to practice self-advocacy for most of my education, like many other young people. So that's on schools to be allowing spaces for young people to have voice and choice allowing spaces for young people to advocate for themselves, to practice that essential skill. So that's how I came to, to be an advocate for myself. And I'll be honest, I'm not good at reading. I spell, I read in the 12th percentile. I spell at a third grade level, but what I'm good at is, is advocating for myself. And and that skill made all the difference. Well, and what I'm, it's really clear and, and everything that you're talking about is so consistent with, you know, what we stand for, with what we know works in the realm of, of neurodiversity and kids with ADHD, et cetera. And that's, you really play to your strengths. And what I'm hearing is you had a mom who was, who was able to see those strengths and really allow you to lean into them without freaking out about the deficits or the challenges. Not only did she allow me to lean into them, but she prioritized the building of strength as Mm -hmm. a core goal. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, I couldn't spell to save my life, still can't. And every Friday was spelling test day, right? Like, what a wonderful way to end the week, you know? Right. (laughs) Like, super rad. And every day reading up to Friday was fix my spelling you know, flashcards, draw the words in the sand, do interpretive dance to get the words in, you know? Yep. Right. And every Friday, I'm basketball, <laughs> yep. basketball. Traveling. Been yep. there. <laughs> we've been there. <laughs> and, and every Friday I would uh, fail the test. And not this one Friday though, you know, one Friday I came on down to the breakfast table. Usually, you know, we would do some more remediation with the pop tarts and there were no flashcards. And I said, Hey ma, what's up? And my mom said, Hey, Jonathan, Today, we're going to ditch school and go to the zoo. My mom called it get good at something day. So literally for one year, because the school wouldn't accommodate around spelling and spelling tests, my mom pulled me out and we invested in the things I cared about. I loved animals. We went to the zoo. I'm good at building things. So we went to construction sites for contractor friends of the family. You know, I was getting detentions for making jokes in class. So my mom took me to improv class instead. Mm -hmm. Then I got in pause, right? So my mom didn't just rhetorically lean into, oh, hey, Jonathan, you're good at this. She she invested time in cultivating talent. A good friend of mine named Rich Weinfeld, who's an advocate out there in the world, give him a shout out. One of the first people to invite me to speak when he was head of gifted and talented education for Montgomery County in Maryland. He says, tutor the strengths, make time for talent. 
And that was the greatest gift that I could get. You know, it's funny. What I say to parents a lot is this kid needs a win. You know, yeah. by the time they come to us, there's there's often, especially with teenagers, fracture and tension. And it's like, what can we do to help this kid feel a win in their life? Because without that, you, you can't build on that if you don't have the success to start with. Well, it's like the it's like the Chinese finger trap, you know, like you get your finger in, you try to get it out. When a kid is struggling, we focus on the deficits and not out of being malice, but trying to help. But the problem is when you fix, fix, fix and focus on the deficit, it's like the finger trap. You get further stuck. Right. right. The trick to getting out of the finger trap is to do the opposite, to relax your hands, push in and they slide out. Kids need a win. They need an asset-based identity. They need to experience success. And then they have the courage. They have the emotional um, strength to go back to those things that are hard. But if we double down on what's wrong, we're doomed for failure. Well, and as you're talking, I'm thinking about all the parents who are listening who, you know, your mom had the ability to make you her full-time job for some period of time, it sounds like, right? And- not everybody is in that situation. They want to be able to be for their kids. They want to be able to do for their kids. They may not even be able to take every, you know, one Friday a month off and, and do the kinds of things that you and your mom were able to do. What are some of the little tiny wins that we could share that might be helpful tools that parents could take home? How we talk informs how we think. It doesn't take time or money to, to talk about young people differently, you know, to flip the script around deficit versus strength to reframe states of being that have historically been seen through a deficit pathology lens, learning disability, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, and replace that language with a neurodivergent neurodiversity lens, which acknowledges that there's real challenge, but also real strength. And that this is a, a facet of human diversity that's valuable to the world. It also doesn't take the time my mom invested to be an advocate in the life of your child in school. I know that that's hard to do. I'm not minimizing that task. It was very hard for my mom. My mom struggled in school. My mom raised my brother and two sisters on welfare in San Francisco. So my mom was terrified every time she walked into a classroom because those were the smart people. They were the professionals and she was poor white trash, her word, you know? So my mom faced all that and at the same time, advocated for for my right to learn differently. So the way we talk, the way that we engage the school, and then lastly, what we do outside of school with our time, you know, uh, there's a temptation and parents get the message that if a kid's struggling with reading, it's time to go to phonics camp and double down on the remediation. We have a choice to do that or maybe send a kid like me to something different that's talent and asset-based and interest-based. So we don't got to pull kids out of school for sixth grade. We don't got to take kids out every Friday. We can talk differently. We can show up and be advocates in school. And then on our own time, we can dedicate it, as my rich friend, Rich Reinfeld said, to tutoring the talent and the strength that students have and letting the deficits go for a little bit. 
I love the tutoring, the talent. That that's, one's, that's just beautiful. Let me ask you a question as you look back on it, because I love that you took off sixth grade and you healed and you got a chance to, to have some life experiences. Something must have shifted. I know you didn't come back as a straight A student in seventh grade, but something must have shifted that invited you to want your education differently in order for you to have taken the path and to push through and done what you did, like, do you know what shifted in you? Yeah. So again, full transparency and honesty yeah. here. When I went back to school in seventh grade, school was still a shit show for me. For yeah. me. Yeah. I get it. As it was in eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, yeah. and, and most of high school. But what shifted for me, what kept me in the game for lack yeah. of a better word, was two things. And I think this is the, these are the types of shifts that we would hope for children who are struggling in school. One, I got pissed off. Good. Not at myself, but at the injustice of what I was facing. And yeah. that was a monumental transformation. You know, another advocate that I love, and I'm all about giving people props, a friend of mine named uh, Roberta Rivera, neurodiversity advocate, poet, entrepreneur. He likes to say that you got to take the pain and use it as propane to feel yourself. And so that happened to me in sixth grade, very intentionally. My mom would say all the time, you know, versions of school sucks. You're not the problem. The problem is a factory model to learning. And this is wrong. And so getting to that place of like, this is wrong, allows you to make that shift Roberto talks about from pain to propane. The second thing that shifted was I, I started to get a glimpse of a bright, a better future for myself. You know, my mom would constantly talk about how uh, difficult children make interesting adults. That's a quote yeah. she would use. She would talk about how school's not built for people who are different, but life is. And she would show me role models. She showed me a video of a young man who was at Yale Law School and he couldn't read. Uh, and his mom read every one of his law books to him. Do you have any idea the hope that image gave me? I mean, look, uh, let's be honest, it sucks to be the guy's mom, right? I was gonna, and you didn't want to take mom to college. I get yeah, that. Yeah, I was just saying you wouldn't want to take mom to college. <laughs> I get that. But at the end of the day, cultivating a positive future you know, yeah. that that was what kept me going. It got me back in and it kept me going, even though it was one step forward, couple steps back, couple steps sideways, uh, using that anger as fuel and having a vision for a better future is what kept me uh, moving forward in my life. I love it. You know, one of the things we, we talk about, we do a lot of work with parents of, of older kids and young adults. I mean, we work with parents of kids of all ages, but last couple of years, you know, older kids and, and young adults have been showing up. Parents have been showing up a lot. And we talk a lot about this notion of holding a vision for our kids and inviting them to it until they're able to see it for themselves. Because a lot of our kids don't see that glimpse of a future for themselves mm -hmm. and they need their parents desperately to hold that for them so that, that they can begin to incrementally move towards it, as you're describing. So fast forward to, you did get through college with learning and attention issues, right? And then you got out and you wanted to be an advocate and do something about it. And you joined forces and dyslexic kid with, you know, 12%, whatever, wrote a book. 
<laughs> yeah. I actually wrote the book in college, not to brag about. And the, if I recall, <laughs> the book was, is for students. Am I right? Wasn't it designed initially for students directly? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I tried to get my kids to read it. <laughs> Yeah. So the first book's title, uh, Jonathan, go ahead and... Yeah, so it's a book called Learning Outside the Lines. And Learning Outside the Lines was co-authored with a fellow Brown student named David Cole. And David and I met on the first day of transfer orientation at Brown. So I transferred to Brown. I went to a four-year college before Brown on soccer scholarship. That's what kept uh-huh. me going. And yeah. then I had a transformation in my advocacy and approach to my own learning and decided to throw my flag as far as I could and go to Brown. Dave Cole had a a similar but different story, was homeless for a while, substance, behavioral health problems, challenges, ADD. And and we met on the first day at Brown. And um, I'll never forget it. We were in a uh, orientation. You know, you had to do an icebreaker. Where'd you transfer from? What'd you do the summer before? And it was Brown. So it was like, let the brag fest begin. You know, it was like I transferred from Yale and, you know, I'm on a short list for a Nobel Prize. Right. Right. And, and then Dave, <laughs> Dave stood up and Dave had uh, purple hair. He had bracelets made out of bicycle chains. And he said, my name's Dave Cole. And I transferred from Landmark College. Oh, uh, yeah. Which is a two year college for people with learning and attentional neurodiversities. Right. And he said, I worked construction last summer. And I'm like, that's my boy right there. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I went up to Dave and um, I told him about my dyslexia. First person outside of my family and teachers that I ever told. And Uh Dave looked right at me and he said, you know, the dyslexic brain kicks ass. And he said, we should write a book. And I'm like, what are you talking about, man? Like, write a book? Like, uh, I don't know. And about a day later, I realized Dave Cole was a genius and that we should write a book. So Dave and I sold a book idea our junior year in college to Simon & Schuster. We took time off of Brown to write it. And it was published the September uh, after we graduated. That's amazing. And it sat on my coffee table for about six years so that the kids could not because there was no I knew they weren't going to read it if I handed it to them. But they Uh, might read it if it was just sitting there and they picked it up. So it literally lived on the coffee table in my house for about six years. And and, and more of them might read it if the original title, nobody knows this, but one of our original titles, this is the first time I've ever said this in interviews, original title was School Sucks. (laughs) So (laughs) I I thought more people would pick that book up, but you know, what are you going to (laughs) do? Yeah. I, yeah. Well, Simon and and Schuster is a whole other, you know, yet another institution. Well, and I know we're, we're getting close to time, but one of the things we have haven't really talked about is what does advocacy look like? Because I have this view of let's blow up the school system and figure out how to make it a better world for these kids. And maybe we want to use different language than blow up the school system. (laughs) Okay. Sorry. (laughs) We want to, you know, change the model. Let's change the model so that it it better fits the kid. And we know uh, shout out to the teachers who are struggling with so many things right now and and having Mm. such a, have, are in really kind of a no-win situation. What does advocacy really look like? How do we help teachers and school systems and principals and and be as effective and, yeah. as they can be, knowing that they want to do the best for these kids? They just are having a really hard time doing it. Yeah. Well, advocacy starts first with community. 
So at Brown with David Cole and others, we created something at the time was called Project Eye to Eye. It's now called Eye to Eye National. And it's uh, run by another Brown alum, a good friend, amazing writer advocate named David Flink. And Eye to Eye took college students with uh, learning and attentional differences and matched them with kids, not as tutors, but as mentors to build a sense of self to build community because in community there's healing and then ultimately there's collective power and a big shout out to, to, to Dave Flink, who's run eye to eye for over 15 years now, national organization, building community out there and igniting a generation of advocates to fight for themselves and others. The second thing that advocacy entails is us finding common ground. And you said it beautifully. You know, I've spent 22 years talking with teachers, all 50 states, most 50 states, four or five times and 10 countries. And the common ground is everyone feels stuck and disempowered in a system designed for a factory economy in the 19th century. Uh, The teachers do, the administrators do, even the so-called normal learners feel stuck and shortchanged. So the more that we can sort of phrase this and develop language and movements around that common ground, the bigger uh, our collective power is. And then ultimately, you know, this is about policy change. We, We have the system that we vote for and we have many opportunities to Uh, vote differently and to imagine a different system. One of the things a group of advocates is working hard on right now, and it's a call to action for anyone listening, is to reimagine the Individuals with Disability Education Act, which is a landmark piece of civil rights legislation that created special education, to reimagine that legislation to facilitate universal design of instruction, to move away from the pullout model of the disabled are here and the normal kids are here and to recognize that we're all in a continuum of cognitive and physical diversity and that we should be building uh, school systems and funding it accordingly, not for the myth of human sameness, but the reality of human difference. (laughs) And that's really an opportunity that's out there with advocates uh, who are pushing for reauthorization of the IDEA around funding universal design of instruction. And that's a an evolution of learning that doesn't just help some kids, but ultimately helps all learners. Is there an organization that's behind that specifically, or is it a co- It's a collaboration of, of organizations, one of which is a equity center at the RAND Corporation, which is a think tank, and then multiple other ones, including CAST, which is a universal design organization based in Boston. And, and if you Google that, you'll be able to find a way to plug in. Awesome. That's great. All right, I know that, that we're really running out of time and we need to, to do. I want to ask one more question before we start wrapping up, because what we haven't really gotten into is I know that you're an advocate, but what is it that you're doing in the world? You're writing, you're speaking, you're playing to those strengths. What is it that you want parents to know that you think what's the message that, that we may or may not have hit on today that you want to make sure we hit clearly? Different isn't deficient. You know, we have uh, a broad cultural narrative that the middle of the bell curve is good and right. Mm -hmm. And the things that deviate from that myth of average or normal are deficient and wrong. And as a result, whole swaths of human beings have been made to feel less than as human beings and have been conceptualized as deficient, not different. 
And our work together is to challenge that narrative to reframe states of being that have been seen through a pathology lens as neurodiversities mm-hmm. and to fight for systems that broadly define diversity, including diverse brains and bodies in our diversity frameworks. And ultimately, uh, our work is to, to fight for people's right to be different. Yeah. So what's the message for the kids out there? I mean, you've got three young kids under 16. Like, what do you want kids to hear from this conversation? That normal sucks. Mm. Title of second book, by the way, y'all. <laughs> it's it's and, and something my mom said to me. You know, I remember when I was first diagnosed and uh, we sat in the school psychologist's office and they read from the report and it was disability this, disorder this, executive functioning deficit this. Yeah. And, and I walked out of the meeting. I said, hey, mom, am I normal? And my mom said to me, Jonathan, normal sucks. And my mom was right. You know, uh, the only normal people are people you don't know very well. <laughs> because well, and I might, I might spin it and say normal is a myth. I mean, you used that word myth a while ago, right? It's just sort of, there is no such thing as normal, right? Nobody's normal, but we have cultural practices that enforce normalcy on people, making it very real in the world. And that set of institutional and cultural practices that normal it sucks it sucks for the neurodivergent it also sucks for everybody because we're all in a continuum of bodily and brain differences and difference is what constitutes our humanity Uh indeed Uh you know your mom i love the line you said earlier that your mom said Something about difficult children make interesting adults. And, you know, my, my version of that was you're going to be an amazing adult. We just got to get you there. Yep. Right. And that it's like a gauntlet for some kids to get them there. And I, I really want to honor and, and thank you for, for the work you're doing in helping to shift that and make that less stressful and more attainable for more and more families and more and more kids. It's important work. Thank you. Yeah. So we do need to wrap it up. How can people find out more about you? Where do you want to direct people to? We will add it to the show notes so we don't have to spell everything here, but but where can people find you? <laughs> this is not time for the spelling bee. No this spelling, no spelling, spelling, no okay. spelling required. Uh, two out of three of us are learning and attention challenged. So <laughs> my, my Zoom connection was about, was magically going to break off right now. If it was just spelling, it was just we spelling made you spell, I'm good. Yeah. That's, yeah the, as sorry. it should. It's been fun. Uh, so people can come find me at uh, jonathanmooney.com. That's an easy spot. And then all the social stuff, it's the same thing. It's the Jonathan Mooney on all the different social platforms. Those, those, are, those are good places to come say hello to me. Okay. Got it. We will capture that. And is there anything that we've missed? Anything you want to say as we wrap it all up? I'm tremendously optimistic about our future because of people like you out there on the front lines supporting parents and families from a neurodiversity lens. I'm optimistic because of the thousands, tens of thousands of teachers I meet every year when I speak at professional developments and the obvious energy and willingness to think differently about folks who learn differently and advocate for systems level change. And I'm optimistic about 
the contribution that our community can make because it's it's not the the normal who changed the world it's it's the different and the world needs changing yeah. <laughs> it's the kid in the hallway who becomes the social entrepreneur in the boardroom it's the kid chilling out with the janitor who becomes the next inventor our problems as a species are going to be solved by folks who think differently and you all Everyone listening, you are a part of that movement, and that movement uh, has and will continue to have tremendous impact on the world. Mm, beautiful. Thank you for that. I, I'm with you with that. So you got a favorite quote or motto that you want to share? There's a writer named Michel Foucault, and he wrote that the judges of normality are ever present everywhere. And um, it's a favorite quote of mine because it reminds me even 22 years in to not be enforcing normal on anybody on my, my wife, my children, my friends, and to be engaging with each human being as a singular human being and to be honoring what they bring to the world and to not be one of those judges of normality in somebody else's life. Yeah. Beautiful. That's what an amazing, amazing message. That's just like, Mm -hmm. we'll put a period at the end of that and just be done. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Jonathan. Jonathan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being with us. Yeah, this is super cool. And um, thanks for for making the time for me. And whenever, whenever the thing's done, I'll send it out to the different platforms and whatnot. And I'll do the same for all the amazing guests, writers, thinkers that you all have on. So thanks for letting me be a part of it. Appreciate that. Anything else you want to add, Di? No, thanks for everyone who's listening. Appreciate what you're doing every day for yourself and for your kids. At the end of the day, you make a difference. Take care, everybody. We'll see you on the next one. You've been listening to the Parenting with Impact podcast with Elaine and Diane. For more information on the Impact Parents community or to join Sanity School for Parents, please visit impactparents.com. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with friends who need similar guidance and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For the essentials of Elaine and Diane's coach approach to parenting, download a free tip sheet at impactparents.com slash podcast. Behavior therapy training for parents is actually recommended as a first-line treatment for complex kids. For information about Sanity School, our training program for parents or teachers, which has helped thousands of families around the globe, visit impactparents.com slash sanity school. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.